All right. Well, thank you all for coming. Hope you uh, enjoyed the reading of Numbers. Uh, tonight we're going to do a, a, just a quick survey of the book of Numbers, and we want to start uh, by asking a question: What is this book about? What is it about? So, for you, for those of you who had a chance to uh, to read Numbers last week or in the last couple weeks, maybe in a sentence or two, what do you think the book of Numbers is about? You'd describe it to a friend. Well, you'd say, "Hey, this got to read this book of Numbers because it is about Man. fill in the blank." Somebody start. Well, one. But just let me see hands. But yeah, go right ahead. One thing it's about is Israel's journey to the Promised Land and how God provides for them. Oh, that's fantastic. That's a great summary. So Israel's journey to the Promised Land, how God provides for them. Yeah, His faithfulness. Good. Yeah, wait. Uh, it's, it's also about the preservation and, and re-identification of the tribes. Uh, okay. The, for, yeah. Which is part of God's plan of grace to Jesus. So it's good. a link in the chain, if you will. Okay, good. Another link in the chain to show God's preservation of the tribes and specific names through whom the line of Messiah can be traced. Good. That's very good. Um, kind of how many ways that we can fail at being holy? <laughs> yeah. Let me count the ways. Yeah. <laughs> they do that quite a bit. Yeah, so the ways that uh, we as human beings before a holy God can be you know, failures in pursuing holiness. Yeah, good. Good. And what would you, if you were to sum up the failure to be holy and what you see in the book of Numbers, what would you ascribe it to? The one, just, you only have one sin. Three guesses. One no sin. fear. No fear of God? Right. Right. Okay. Idolatry. Idolatry. Okay. Idolatry would be good. Unbelief. Unbelief. That's the word I choose, is unbelief. <clears throat> but yeah, but it's all tied up into, you know, I think idolatry, um, no fear of God, but really the heart of that is just they didn't believe God. Right. And they turned away from Him. Their hearts were not knitted together. It that they have no memory. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, they say those who don't know their history are doomed to repeat themselves. Right. And, um, boy, we have <laughs> yeah, God history written out before of us, but how many times have we used superpower it? ever? What's that? That God took us out of Egypt, the biggest superpower ever, but we're going to be afraid of all these smaller kingdoms up here. Yeah, <laughs> you'd think. How many times? I, we, we would probably do the same, but yeah. it, it is funny. Yeah, it, you know, it's striking like Elijah on Mount Carmel. Yeah. 450 prophets of right. Baal, he slaughters them all, he's champion, God is true And then God. Jezebel says, I'm going to get you. Oh, I'm running. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, great. Um, so, some, somebody else want to give a, just a quick summary? Yeah, right. I think there's a perpetual cycle of uh, wanting to go back to Egypt, uh, sending in that regard, and then basically... Moses having to pray for them. Or, you know, they first repented by saying, um, forgive us, we've sinned. Moses intercedes for them, and God graciously grants them forgiveness. Is that the repeated cycle? Yeah. Yeah, it's almost like God is brought to the brink every time of just almost just annihilating them all. And Moses steps in and says, hold on. God says, I'm going to be gracious. That's amazing grace, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Amazing faithfulness to remember this covenant. Good. 
Any anybody else? Uh, just burning the yeah. Go ahead. Well, it's called numbers, so I'm wondering if the, the census is important. Like the counting of the people <laughs> and um, yeah. the history of that, or the history, the real history of that. <laughs> That's the portion in your reading you just generally skip over. You, know, you get to chapter 14, you're like, yeah, now we're talking. But numbers, yes, it is. The census is important. It is important. Um, and we'll talk about that in a second. Thank you. All right. So, like the, uh, just, just a quick overview. You, you all have kind of given the overview, basically. But uh, like the rest of the Torah, Moses wrote the book of Numbers. Um, there's actually a reference to that. You can write down Numbers 33.2 and 36.13. 33.2 .2 and 36.13. Those are just references to the fact that Moses write, wrote uh, the book. What was the second one? 36.13. But since the, uh, since the book covers... Um, Israel's journey from Sinai, where they were, right, in Leviticus, so they were in Sinai for a month, covers their, uh, the, Israel's journey from Sinai to the plains of Moab. The events that are described in the book of Numbers um, start with their departure in, from Sinai in 1444 BC and go all the way to the entrance into the Promised Land in 1405 BC. So Deuteronomy 1.3 says it was in the 40th year on the first day of the 11th month. That puts the date of writing of the book of Numbers around 1405 B.C. as well. So Moses wrote this book. He wrote it in about 1405 B.C. Book of Numbers, as I said, is about Israel's journey from Mount Sinai to the plains of Moab. It was called Numbers, Christy, uh, because that's what it was called in the Septuagint. Uh, it was referred to as as the book of Numbers, also the Vulgate, the Latin. Uh, and it was because of what she said, the censuses in chapters 1 through 4, and then also chapter 26. Can anybody tell me the difference between those two censuses? Why two censuses? The first census was, the first census was when they came out of Egypt. Okay, first census when they came out. And the second census was a whole different generation. Whole, they went back in. A whole different generation before they went back in. Uh, so when they came out of Egypt, the first census, that was one generation. And then a whole other census for a new generation before they go into where? Into Canaan. Into Canaan, into the promised land. Why was that necessary? Because we're going to do some fighting. Oh, okay. Yeah, I meant, well, I wasn't clear about my reference. So why was the... what? Why not just uh, do the one census and send them into the promised land? Because they weren't there anymore. Yeah, they weren't there anymore. <laughs> they were all slaughtered. Uh, they died in the wilderness. Yeah, good. Because of unbelief. Because of unbelief. Yeah, exactly. So, good. There, that's, uh, but that's why it was called Numbers in the, the Septuagint and the Vulgate, and that's carried over into the English. Um, the, the key theme, and one of the key themes in the book is, is the setting, and that's noted in 1-1. Look at Numbers 1-1. And it says, if I can get there, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month, the second year after they come out of the land of Egypt. So that phrase, in the wilderness, in the wilderness, the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness. That's the Hebrew name of the book, the uh, midbar. So the ba means an in, into, and then midbar is the word 
desert or wilderness. So that's the Hebrew name of the book. And it's, it's descriptive of really the setting of the entire book. The word wilderness is repeated very often in the book, 48 times. And that makes the wilderness one of the major themes. It's a topographical reference to the barrenness. Uh, the wilderness in that day was a, was a day that was not, it wasn't uh, massively inhabited. It wasn't uh, a lot of vegetation. It was pretty barren, hard to live off the land there. In fact, you could die out in the wilderness because it was just so dry. So that topical barrenness of the wilderness of Sinai, then they also travel into the wilderness of Kadesh Barnea, um, and also into the wilderness of Paran. That whole, also the wilderness of Zin, those are, those are both in Kadesh. But that topographical or physical, the geography of barrenness illustrated by a wilderness, is also a portrayal of the spiritual barrenness of unbelieving Israel. In the, uh, if you read your MacArthur Study Bible introduction or some of your notes through the MacArthur Study Bible text, he pointed out how much of a wilderness Numbers actually represents as a book. Um, as I said, the, the, the events recorded, they start in 1444 BC, they end in 1405 BC, but the whole section from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 14, they occur in that year of 1444 BC. Then um, there's some, from chapter 20 to the end of the book, that all covers another year, like 1406 to 1405 BC. There's some laws that are outlined between chapter 15 and chapter 19. They're not dated, so we don't really know exactly when those were given but they fit into that entire, kind of like those silent years, those barren years between 1443 and 1407. So you see what I'm saying? Like the first section of the book, chapter one through 15, covers, is, is covered in, covering a year's time. Uh, the, rest, the end of the book, big chunk of the book is covering another year. There's a whole section in there, a lot of years covered where people are dying off. That's really what's going on. You can just imagine the things that you've read there just continue on, perpetuated all the way through that, those silent years that are not recorded. It's almost like God's grace in not highlighting every single sin, every single instance of disobedience. He just talks about these, but they're illustrative of the fact that it was a barren time, spiritually barren, uh, dry. I mean, one of the... Um, any, any law enforcement officer, anybody involved in some kind of career like that will tell you that it's, it's, uh, their career is um, some, some punctuated moments of excitement that just enter into an entire life of tedium and boredom. Most of the time they're just sitting around and every now and again they get to go chase a bad guy. And so there's, uh, there's an adrenaline rush but then the rest of the time is just Boredom, tedium. Think of Israel wandering day after day after day, camping day after day, baking in the sun, watching more people die, burying more people. It's just barren. It's just barren. That's, that's what uh, the book of Numbers uh, pictures. The note in the MacArthur Study Bible says a lack of material devoted to this 37-year period 
in comparison with the other years of the journey from Egypt to Canaan, communicates how wasted these years were because of Israel's rebellion against the Lord and his consequent judgment. It's a great point. The good news, though, is that the wilderness, it was never the end goal. That was not, that was not the point of the book of Numbers. That period of wilderness rep wandering represented sin, rebellion, it represented divine judgment, but in the larger scope of God's plan, it was just an unpleasant part of the journey that was temporary. It passed. The promised land was what was at the journey's end. That's where God intended to bring them, to bring his people into the land that he promised. That was God's intention all along, and that's what we see happening. That plan seemed in jeopardy due to many instances of disobedience, even outright rebellion by his people, even by the leadership. Um, but God showed himself faithful. Uh, he overcomes all sin, all rebellion, all even leadership failures to the nth degree, even Moses' failure. Uh, but he was fulfilling his promises in spite of their unfaithfulness. That is a comfort, that our God is sovereign, our God is always good, he's always faithful to his promises. That is such a piece of good news, because guess what? Here in our church, we're all going to fail too. We're all going to do some stupid things sometimes, some sinful things from, from uh, you know, every level in, within the church, even to the leadership. We can do bad things and stupid things, but you can trust a God who is over all of that, who's bringing all his purposes uh, uh, to his final culmination. So, it's just a bit of the overview of the book of Numbers. Let's talk about the purpose of the book. Purpose of the book, let me give you the short version, then I'll give you a longer version. Write down the short version. The short version is Numbers was written to show man's failure and God's faithfulness. That easy? Man's failure, God's faithfulness. Here's the longer version. Numbers is written to show how Israel failed to obey Yahweh in faith and incurred Yahweh's discipline by death, but Israel's failure didn't frustrate Yahweh's ultimate purpose to bless Israel. Which would you rather write down? <laughs> All right, so um, Numbers is written to show how Israel failed to obey Yahweh in faith, incurred Yahweh's discipline by death, but Israel's failure did not frustrate Yahweh's ultimate purpose to bless Israel. Why do you think that message is important for us to understand? That purpose of, of uh, the book of Numbers. Numbers written to show God's, or, uh, man's failure, God's faithfulness, why is that message important for us to understand? What lesson does God want his people to understand? Why is it so crucial for us today? That's a portable message. It happened to them, it could happen to us. Okay, good. God doesn't change. Good. It happened to them, it can happen to us. Yes? I see it not every day, but I mean, when I know that I fail, I fail, but God's faithful. And he provided that gift of love and grace through his son, Jesus Christ. Good. So the way Gary spoke of it, it was a bit of a warning. The way you spoke of it, it's a bit of a comfort. So warning and comfort, you can see. Yeah, good. Yeah, Daniel. I think it's a bit of comfort, too, that even before we had been saved, maybe in some of those stupid decisions that we had made, that God will have it work out for good long term. And, um, you know, maybe the momentary consequences or whatever, the Lord will use all that for his good. It is a comfort to know, and just in, in trying to reinforce your point or restate it a little bit, it's a comfort to know that God is going to use all things mm -hmm. 
for our for the good of those who are who love God who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28. But he's also going to use all things for his own ultimate glory. It is a, a real comfort to know that he's always on the throne. He's always at work. He's always going to He's always going to bring everything to the consummation of uh, this plan. Yeah, that's good. Uh, I saw another hand somewhere. Leah. Oh, I was just going to say, it sounds like the gospel in a nutshell. Huh. We're consistently not faithful. He's faithful in our place. That's really good. I like that. You should write a book or something. Um, <laughs> but it's a gospel in a nutshell. Yeah. We are not faithful. He was faithful in our place. I love that. Good. Just what you just said, I think the one thing that becomes very clear, God's plans can't be thwarted. And it also shows us that we may not be as important as we think. Because the people that were led out of Egypt, I mean, they, they were God's chosen people. I'm sure they thought everything hinged on them. Yeah. And again, just the idea that... Uh, for God to accomplish his purpose kind of goes with Acts. God does not need anybody to serve him. He will accomplish his purpose. He uses us, but we shouldn't get the big head and think that we are vital for him accomplishing it. That's that's a really good point, um, that we should never, never think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. That it's really about God and His purposes, and really we're we're human instruments. We're important to Him, and and He uses us, but we're really not that important. Like a lot of people coming out of Egypt, some of those guys were very important, very gifted, going all the way up to the top guy, Moses himself. He didn't enter into the Promised Land, did he? It wasn't that essential. God removed him, and He used somebody else. I mean, Moses lived what 100. What was it, 120 years? 120 years. 120 years. Couldn't he have lived 130 and just kind of... I mean, that would be my plan. He's got so much experience. I mean, he has been, he's been in the courts of Egypt. He's wandered and, and been toughened and hardened in the, in the deserts of Midian. Um, man, he, left, he led this people from when they were a slave rabble, transformed them into a nation, and then he led them all the way through the wilderness wanderings and survived coup after coup after coup. And here he is, strong, full of experience. I'd say, for my vote, it's going to be Moses to take him into the promised land. God said, nah. Hides his body and sends in Joshua. We're not indispensable. Every single one of us, every single one of us can be replaced and we need to you need to remember that. Be humble and sober-minded. Turn in your Bibles for just a, yet another illustration of the purpose of this book and why it's important. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 10. I want to show you where 1 Corinthians 10. I want to show you um, what God wants us to take special note of as we study numbers. Um, we do need to be mindful of man's unfaithfulness and God's faithfulness. We do need to be on guard for sin's deceitfulness and find uh, our assurance in God's mercy and grace. But there is a specific lesson that God had in mind for us, for, for you and me in this church age. And he's very specific to say this is for you. Look at verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians. 
For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all ate the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Some of those examples ringing a bell? Now these things, verse 11, happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So what's the purpose of numbers? A lesson for us, right? So first, what's, what's the first lesson? Maybe to warn us against spiritual self-confidence. says, uh, verse 1, I want you to know, brothers, I want you to be known. I want this to be a settled fact in your head, something that you know by conviction. Verse 6, these things took place as examples for us. Verse 11, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, okay? So all of this is, is a warning, in the book of Numbers especially, it's a warning against spiritual self-confidence. Because notice, in the first four, what is it, four verses there, it's five verses, all of these people had tremendous spiritual privilege, didn't they? Mm -hmm. All our fathers were under the cloud, passed through the sea, baptized into Moses, ate the same spiritual food, drank the same spiritual drinks, <coughs> drank from a spiritual rock falling as Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. They were overflowing. Their, their bodies lay scattered in the wilderness. So, if, if them, then what about us? If them, in, under tremendous spiritual privilege, what about us under tremendous spiritual privilege? We need to take... Heed, lest we also fall. So, the second thing, though, is to put us on, on guard, not just against general sin and general overconfidence in our spiritual condition, but the second thing is to put us on guard against falling to specific sins. And that's where the list in verse, uh, verse 6, 7, following there. The first one is idolatry in verse 7. That's a reference, I think, back to Exodus 32, Dancing around the golden calf, that's the language that's used there. The people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. Also, sexual immorality, verse 8, that's a reference to Numbers 25. So, we don't want to fall to the specific sin of idolatry, sexual immorality. Also, testing God, verse 9, Numbers 21-5. And also, complaining. You ever thought of your complaints? Mm. Um, hey, uh, you know... You know, you're going through something and you're just kind of venting a little. We, we like to call it venting, and we think it's okay because we use the word venting and we don't use the word grumbling, complaining. Um, but venting is grumbling, complaining. Venting is something God hates. 
venting is some something that he um, destroyed. No, it says uh, destroyed by the destroyer. Okay, so God doesn't like venting. He doesn't like us to be frustrated, as my wife likes to remind me. Frustration, Travis, is just a subtle form of ungodly, unrighteous anger. Good answer. Yes, dear. You are so right. So go back to, she's right about it. So go back to the book of Numbers and just... Keep those things in mind about the purpose, what the purpose of numbers is, and what its purpose is even in our, in our own lives. It does show man's failure and God's faithfulness. It is gospel in a nutshell, but it's also a warning against spiritual self-confidence. It's also a warning against specific sin in our lives. We need to fight sin, and we need to take heed. Those who think they stand, take heed lest they fall. And if you think you stand, make sure you check your foundation. It doesn't have anything to do with you. It has everything to do with Christ. You're standing on Christ. Okay. So let's get into uh, the book of Numbers a little bit, talk about some ways to organize the content. I actually uh, kind of want to unpack that for you so you didn't have to, you know, get a writer's cramp trying to copy down all the, the, the language. But uh, there's some outlines for you that you can organize it a couple different ways. Because the book of Numbers does show um, kind of like movement, it shows Israel on the move, uh, the geographical movement of Israel as, it's or, as God organized the nation into ranks at Sinai. And that's, you know, 1-1 one, one through 10-10. Ten, ten. They traveled then from Sinai to the plains of Moab. Uh, that's 10-11 through 22-1. They went via Kadesh, uh, and then they settled for a short while on the plains of Moab before they entered into Canaan. That's, that's the rest of the book. And you understand that this book of Numbers really does set up, it's the foundation for the book of Deuteronomy. Anybody know what the word Deuteronomy means? Second telling. Second law, second, yeah. Deutero, it's second, and namas is law, so Deuteronomy is the second law, or the second telling of the law. It's a reminder. It's a, it's a reiteration of the law. And why would God need to reiterate that law? New generation. New generation, exactly. So, um, a couple ways to organize the content here. Uh, both of these put on display God's judgment and mercy, put on display his holy character. Uh, the first way we could organize it is geographically, and, and I just have those three words there. If you think order, disorder, and reorder, uh, you can kind of remember it that way. God brought order, and that's the first third of the book. Um, and that's where... You know, as Christy pointed out, I think the census is probably important in the book. There's a lot of counting going on there. Yeah, it's true. Um, God is ordering the nation. He's putting them into uh, ranks. He's putting them into place. That's what you, Rod Stillman put together that chart for you guys. Um, I think he got it from somewhere, but kind of cleaned it up a bit and gave you that chart. So thank you, Rod, for uh, producing that. But that that just shows you, and there, there's some other things he produced too. I didn't copy out, but... That just shows you that chart. Look at the order and the symmetry in how God organized Israel. Just in how they would, he said, you know, when you camp, don't just throw your tents anywhere you want to. I want you to camp like this. And he put them in specific places. So he numbered them. He clarified who they were. Then he said, I want you to camp this way. And then when you move out, 
I've even got an order for that. <coughs> so you see in the first part at Sinai, the ordering of the people at Exodus. The, sins, the sin of the people, though, brought disorder, discombobulation. It, uh, it, it disintegrated the order. So into the wilderness they go, there's disorder among the people as they sin and rebel against God, and, and everything comes apart. The, the wheels come off the cart, and um, everything looks lost. Oh, but wait, there's a sovereign God who's faithful, and he's going to deliver. And so God restored order by reordering the people. He reorders a new generation to enter into Canaan. So they start at Mount Sinai, where God ordered Moses to count the people, organize them around the tabernacle. That's the camp encampment you have there and then to order them in ranks to follow the tabernacle uh, wherever the tabernacle went, wherever the Levites held the Ark of the Covenant and they marched, and that pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, they followed. Second way to organize the material is, uh, you could call it generational. Uh, it may not be the best way to put it, but generational. The, you get the generation that left Exodus, uh, the, the kind of a transition period as all those people are killed off and then the new generation grows up and then you have the generation that's entering Canaan. So the leaving Egypt generation, they're, they're the focus of chapters 1 to 14. Uh, that's the generation that left Egypt, saw God's mighty works and miracles and wonders, uh, but then revealed its own unbelief and incurred God's judgment. Then you have this transitioning period, uh, 15 to 25. There's a transition time when that first generation died in the wilderness, and that took, what, 37 years to kill them all off? And then the second generation grew up, and they watched that. I mean, that leaves a... We don't, we don't uh, seem to have the same experience. We, we were teaching on Sunday night about uh, Martin Luther and uh, just some of the world that uh, uh, kind of explains the, some of the setup for the Reformation. And I would imagine that uh, the bubonic plague, losing people in the Black Death, you know, 75 million people around Europe, and then also the Crusades and losing all your young men to war, sending them off, sending them off, and they never come home. Whether, whether you're sending them away and they die, you'll never see them again, or whether you have to bury them yourself, that leaves a mark on you. You know, it leaves a mark on a younger generation when you have to bury your parents, and, and, and you, see, you see judgment all around you. 37 years of burying people, they drilled into their head, obey God, do it his way, do it his way. We don't seem to have the same, we kind of hide death in our day, I think. So, transitioning time, second generation grew up burying their parents and then entering Canaan in 26 to 36, that, that generation that was taught and instructed, received the second law, they enter the promised land, they're prepared by God at the last part of Numbers. So, we've had a bit of an overview tonight, just uh, just an entrance into the book, looked at the purpose and the organization of the book. Let's, let's briefly cover some of the major themes. Um, any questions at this point? Okay, good. All right, so just uh, let's cover some of the, the major themes. I've, I've kind of organized several themes. There's a big list of themes that you can cover. But I've kind of organized them into some main categories. You see, you should see them there on your outline. Geographical, anthropological, and theological. Is that what you have? Okay. Mm -hmm. I hurried to put that handout together, so I didn't know if you made it right. Okay, good. Geographical. We'll talk about two themes there under that category. The wilderness and the promised land. The wilderness and the promised land. So 
Wilderness, I'm not going to give you all the references. If you're really, really an eager beaver student, you can come and get them from me after. Um, but there's references to the wilderness in many of the chapters in the book of Numbers. Um, no big surprise to you. And as we said, the wilderness theme, repeated over and over, it's a reminder of testing, it's a reminder of sin, it's a reminder of judgment, it's a reminder of spiritual barrenness, okay? The promised land, that's also got a number of references, which I'm not going to run you through, but the land, that points them to their eventual home in the promised land. So you can see this, this contrast between one land and the other, and the land of the wilderness that they're wandering around in is barren, it's dry, it's, it's not fun, it's not permanent, and God is pointing them to what? What is, what is the theological word for where they're going? Hope. It's the word hope. You could even think, in some senses, eschatology. You know, it's, well, it's not eschatology, but it, that's what the purpose of eschatology is for us: is to point us to hope, a final place of rest, of entering into God's rest. Yeah. I was just curious, how long, if Israel would have went straight from Egypt into Cana, how long would a normal trip take for that many people to cover that distance? I'll tell you the Is truth, that, I don't. I don't know. I don't I have that in my head. Anybody know? Josh, your seminary training, teach you to answer spontaneous questions like that? No. <laughs> I, don't, I just don't remember. Less than, I don't less than 40 years. Spoken from a mathematician. I think you can take that to a Yes, Mike. I think it's a pretty short time. I, I think I remember hearing something like 11 days if you just went straight across, but they didn't. They didn't want to do that because they would have gone right into war. So. Yeah, somebody, somebody said it took a, it took God, what was it, a week to get Israel out of Egypt, but it took 40 years for uh, God get Egypt, Egypt out of, get out of, out of Israel. Yeah. Yeah, so he's saying 11 days. Let's bump that up to two weeks. So anywhere between two weeks and 40 years, we'll say, is probably about the time that it would take. Um, but this, uh, anytime the land is referenced, it's you know referencing the promised land. Um, number of number of uh, verses and, and references to that, and that just points them ahead. Points them ahead to keep focusing on God's promise. That's a very important spiritual principle for you. Uh, just as you live your daily life, that you do not get caught up in the mundane. Uh, we could even call this our spiritual wilderness, right? This is our time of barrenness. This is the time of, of difficulty and trial and travail. Don't keep looking around you here. Focus on the promises. Focus on the, focus on the things that God has promised you to, to point you ahead so that you keep on looking ahead to hope and to, to heaven and to glorification and to the absence of sin. Anybody looking for the absence of sin? I can't wait. Um, so, anyway, look ahead and focus on God's promises. Keep, keep those things fresh in your mind. That was important for the people of Israel as well. So that's one of the themes. Geographically, you look at the wilderness and the promised land. Another theme there is the anthropological theme. What I mean by that is just, what this is teaching us about man, mankind? Um, God's, uh, you see God's intention in anthropology just by, you know, chapters 1 through 4, 
And then really you go you know, through the rest of that. And then also in, verse, in chapter 26, where you see the census taken in both places, you see the ordering of the encampment, you see the ordering of the march, you see God has in, um, in his plan, in his divine intention for humanity, not chaos, not every man does what is right in his own eyes, not let's, eat, let's each one of us chase our preferences and be self-centered and go in all, all of our separate directions. No, he wants order. He loves order and submission and ranking and structure. That's God's heart. He did it in creation when he brought order to the chaos that was in the world and and separated things out. He separated, divided, and he filled. God is a God of order. He does the same thing here with his people. This is the same thing he does for humanity. When he puts the nation of Israel together, he gave them laws, he gave them rules, he gave them structure, he gave them civil codes and ceremonies and how to come and how to build a temple and all the intricate details of that. And He's not haphazard about anything. He's ordered and structured, and he wants us to live in an orderly, structured way. I was um, listening to Moeller recently, and I can't remember now exactly what he was talking about. He was, I think I was pointing this out to my kids, though. Uh, I think it was yesterday we were just talking about this, how when you follow God's pattern for uh, human sexuality, is I think what Moeller was talking about at the time, when you follow that, um, when you keep that gift in its proper context of marriage, one man, one woman, for life, commitment, covenant, you, uh, order follows from that. Blessing follows from that. If you start to pull the thread of God's order and design and start to reinterpret and do things your own way, disorder and disintegration ensues. It's an ugly mess. And that's what we're watching unfold all around us in our society, is complete disorder and disintegration. If you keep things according to God's intention, you find well-numbered, well-ordered, purposeful, fruitful, useful, God-glorifying. It's a good thing to point out about anthropology and one of the themes you find in this um, book of Numbers. Also, you find here uh, sins, and with regard to anthropology, you find God's intention of ordering society, but you also find sin's subversion. You can see sin's subversion in, in chapters, you write down chapters 11, 12, 14, 15, 16, 20, 21, 25. You can probably just add all the chapters there and uh, probably find it. There were significant rebellions in the book of Numbers where the people were almost wiped out completely. You find even the leadership themselves rebellion, rebelling. Miriam and Aaron rebelled. You find Korah and Datham and all those guys rebelling. You find even Moses, even Moses disobeying God. You also find the people moving into outright idolatry in chapter 25. So you see how sin subverts God's design and then brings disorder and chaos where God intends order and purposefulness. Okay, so there's a couple of anthropological themes, God's intention and sin's subversion. Um, theological themes. <coughs> Several of these we could talk about, and I'm not going to have you write all these. You can write these themes down, but uh, there's a bunch of chapters here. I'll go through all the whole thing. 
but just by way of overview, some theological themes. This book teaches us a lot about God. A lot. It teaches us about his glory and his holiness. How seriously, just like in the book of Leviticus, what Leviticus talked about in principle, we see fleshed out in the book of Numbers. God is serious about sin. He will not have sin. He is holy. We see his wrath and judgment for sin. So you can talk about glory and holiness. The second theme, you can talk about wrath and judgment. You also see uh, indications of his mercy and his grace. Even when the people rightly should be wiped out, he stops and says, no, I'm going to show mercy yet again. Yet again. There's an affirmation of blessing in chapters 23 and 24. You also see actions of blessing. Um, he prepared the first generation in chapters 1 to 10, and then when they blew it, he prepared the second generation in chapters 26 to 36. So you see him affirm blessing, but you also see him take action to show blessing. That's God's mercy and his grace. Also, you see his faithfulness to the Abrahamic covenant. Um, let's see if we have time here. I'm going to save my time. So faithfulness to the Abrahamic covenant. Um, you can write down chapter 15, verse 2. Chapter 26, verses 52 to 56. Chapter 27, verse 12. I'll stop there. I'll stop there. Can you get the second one again? Um, 26, verses 52 to 56. Thanks. Sure. So, so those are all some theological themes. Um, Gary did such a great job last week kind of emphasizing the holiness of God and just the character of God on display in that book. This is just an unpacking of this in, in very graphic, uh, graphic and, and story fashion, narrative fashion. God's glory and holiness, God's wrath and judgment, His mercy and His grace, and His ultimate faithfulness to His Abrahamic covenant. Let me, um, let me give you some uh, key passages. There's some significant rebellions uh, recorded in the book of Numbers that are really instructive to us as a people, instructive to us as a church. And in the significant rebellions, we see God's anger against several things. The so first thing, God's anger against grumbling and, <clears throat> and complaining. God's anger against grumbling and complaining. He doesn't like it, okay? Grumbling and complaining. Could we include slander, gossiping about people? Yeah, you can include that. Can you include the tail-bearing and, and carrying a false report? All those things. Yes, he hates grumbling and complaining. He hates maligning, all that stuff. Chapters 11, chapter 22. Or 21, I'm sorry, 21. And there's other instances, too. So God's anger against grumbling and complaining, that's one significant rebellion. Number, number four, another form of rebellion, number two, God's anger against insubordination. His anger against insubordination, chapters 12 and 16. Chapter 12 is, remember Moses and, or I mean, uh, Miriam and uh, Aaron? So, who made you in charge, Moses? Aren't we just as good as you? Don't we? Come on, yeah. You know, and then Miriam gets struck with leprosy. Then you have Korah's rebellion, the ground opening up, swallowing all the rebels. So God is not happy with insubordination. He does not doesn't uh, have patience for that. So, God's anger against grumbling, complaining, his anger against insubordination. Number three, God's anger against dis any disobedience that's fueled by unbelief. Any disobedience that's fueled by unbelief. 
And this leads us to, so this is all talking about key passages regarding significant rebellious activity, rebellious behavior. I want you to turn, when you're through writing, turn to Numbers 14. <clears throat> and again, just under this heading of key passages, this, this is what I you know, see as the turning point in the, in the book of Numbers. You know, it turns from this one generation to another generation, okay? And this is where it happens. Um, <clears throat> uh, let's see here. Well, I can't read the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, I can. No, let's, <laughs> let, let, me, let me see what I can do. Um, God is, let, let's, let's skip ahead to verse 13, because the, the people rebelled... And Moses said to the Lord, if you, okay, let, let go back to verse 11, sorry. The Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? There it is again. The, the issue of a lack of belief in God, not trusting him, in spite of all the signs that I've done among them. I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. I'll make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. What would you have said if you were Moses? Amen. Amen. <laughs> um, but Moses knew himself. He knew himself and knew that out of his own, if it just came out of him, it was going to just produce more of the, more of the same. Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will, I love his, his heart for God. Then the Egyptians will hear of, hear of it, for you brought up this people in your, in, your, uh, in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They've heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people, for you, O Lord, are seen face to face. Your cloud stands over them. You go before them. Pillar cloud by day, pillar fire by night. If you kill this people as one man, the nations who have heard of your fame will say, that's ah, because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them, that he has killed them in the wilderness. And now, please let the power of the Lord be as great as you have promised, saying, the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. What's Moses doing there? He's reminding God of what he said about himself, isn't he? He's pointing God back to his own testimony back in Exodus chapter 33, 34. Now, please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people. According to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. And then Moses said, or then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. But truly as I live, as, and as all the earth um, shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, none of them shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. None of those who despise me shall see it. Fascinating passage there with Moses' intercession pointing to a future need for an intercessor, a future mediator in Jesus Christ. He's a foreshadow, a type of the one who would come. And I love how Moses, in all of his intercession, he's not saying, God, come on, 
I know a lot of these people. They're good folks. I mean, they are, if you just got to know them a little bit, they've got great personalities. And I mean, so many, many kinds of giftedness and some can sing really well and some can, I mean, basket weaving. It's just amazing to see the remarkable talents that they have and they're worth saving, God. No, he doesn't say any of that. He's not, he's not man-centered in his thinking. He's completely God-centered. Completely God-centered. It's all about God's reputation. It's all about His glory. And, and God comes and affirms what Moses said. As, true, as, as, as truly as I live, as, as the earth shall be filled with all the glory of the Lord, none of those men shall enter. So there was a consequence. That's a turning point. Um, and then we see how um, the people mourn greatly at the end of the chapter. Um, see uh, verse 39 there. They rose early in the morning, went up in the heights of the hill country, saying, Here we are. We will go up to the place the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. But Moses said, Why are you doing it again? There you go again. You're transgressing um, the command of the Lord. Uh, when that will not succeed, don't go up. The Lord's not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. And sure enough, they were struck down, right? Just beaten down like a hive of angry hornets chased them down the mountain, right? So, this is uh, this whole section here, um, chapter 13, 14, everything God said about the land of promise was true. Even the spies who came back, all of them said, true, 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 and yet disbelief. We can't trust God. I know. What, who was it that said the greatest superpower in the world? Was it you, Doug? Greatest superpower in the world. God defeated the, uh, the Egyptians, delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Even when they chased them down, God delivered them. Oh, just he just kind of threw up a wall of one, you know, a sea, a red sea on one side and a wall on the other, crushed them beneath the ocean. Um, can he not cast away a few Canaanites? Of course he can. They didn't trust him. That was the point. Okay, so that's a turning point chapter. Key passages, we talked about some significant rebellions. Talked about uh, the turning point, I think, in the book of Numbers. I want to talk about one more, pass one more uh, key passage. And I want you to go for that first to John chapter 3. If you're familiar with John 3, I think you know where I'm going with this. In John 3, Jesus has this this conversation with Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to him at night. And uh, Nicodemus is a ruler of the Jews. He's a, he's a Pharisee. He's one of the Sanhedrin. He is uh, referred to in, in uh, verse 10. Jesus actually affirms, he's, are you not the teacher of Israel? Uh, not a teacher, but the teacher of Israel. You're a very important teacher in Israel. Um, probably an older, well-respected man. He came to Jesus by night. Verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. So he's affirming to Jesus right out of the gate, hey, this is what we know. This is what we know. This is what we come to judge. This is what we come to judge is true. We know this. And Jesus answered him, now you don't know anything. He says, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he can't know anything. He can't see the kingdom of God. You can't see, you can't know, unless you've been born again. So he completely undercuts what Nicodemus thinks he knows. 
He thinks that he knows who Jesus is, that he's a teacher come from God, but he's judged Jesus too low. He's not just a teacher come from God, he's the Messiah, he's the Son of Man. So he's, he's really erred in judgment, in judging him too low. So, Nicodemus says to him, he takes the illustration, how can a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb be born? He's, he's basically saying, how do I, so how do I start over? You're saying I need to be born again? Okay, I get the figure of speech. Jesus said, truly, truly, unless one is born of water and the spirit, that is, born of regeneration, referring back to Ezekiel 36, unless one is regenerated, he can't enter the kingdom of God. You're born of flesh. Whatever born of flesh is flesh. Whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound. You don't know where it comes from, where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the spirit. Basically, he's saying, Nicodemus, you can't control it. You don't know it. It has to happen to you. God is sovereign. The spirit is sovereign. And he's going to take initiative. So Nicodemus is like puzzled. Okay, now what do I do? He wanted to do something before. How can a man, how is a man able to be born again? How do, I, how do I accomplish this? I can't dive back into my mother's womb and do it over. And Jesus, Jesus is saying, you got it all wrong. It's not something you do. It's something God does. And he does it by his own initiative. He takes initiative, his sovereign initiative, and he causes you to be born again. So Nicodemus is now, his mind is scrambled. He says, how can these things be? He wants an explanation from Jesus. Jesus rebuked him. Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things? Then he goes into the issue with Nicodemus. What is the issue with Nicodemus? Truly, truly, verse 11. I say to you, we speak of what we know. We bear witness to what we have seen. Here's the issue. But you do not receive our testimony. That's the problem. Nicodemus didn't receive Jesus' testimony on his own terms. And when he talks about we, he's talking about himself, John the Baptist. So John the Baptist has been testifying to all this. Jesus has been testifying to all this. What's the problem? The Pharisees don't receive his testimony. They don't take him on his own terms. Why? Because they don't believe. They don't believe him. If I've told you earthly things you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So you should listen to me, is the point. And, look at this, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Interesting. He points Nicodemus back to this illustration of Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness, and in the same way, the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So, Nicodemus, you can't do anything, but if you want to know what you need to do, you need to believe. And you need to do it just in the same way that Moses lifted up a serpent in the wilderness. Why is that such a great illustration? Why is this a foreshadowing of Christ? Go back to Numbers chapter 21. Numbers 21, in verses uh, 4 to 9. Okay, Numbers 21, 4 to 9, from Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became 
impatient on the way. There's another thing God doesn't like. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up from out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food, no water. We loathe this worthless food. He's, you know, what's the worthless food they're talking about there? Manna, a gift of God, angel's food. They loathe it. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. They bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. Uh, I, I don't know how you are with snakes. I hate snakes. I hate them. I, I used to be a border patrol agent and um, walking through the desert, uh, tracking groups of illegals that had crossed and everything, I would often come across um, sidewinders in the desert and they kind of burrow themselves down into the mm-hmm. sand so you can't see them and sometimes you're step right on them. And so yeah, they, they terrify me. I wear big, thick boots even down to 126 degree weather because I didn't want to be, <laughs> I don't want to be bit. And so whenever I see one of those things, I didn't care that my gunshot would alert the group I was chasing, that I was around. That snake is gone. There's going to be one less snake on this earth. I shoot the thing. It was very gratifying. There's plenty. <laughs> We should probably take that off the Peter's <laughs> I think even Peter though doesn't like sidewinders. So anyway. But they, snakes are these loathsome, vile things. And and when they're they're vipers and when they're coming after you, fiery, you think about the bite, the venom that goes into your veins. It's just a it's just a picture, really, of like it says in 1 Corinthians 15, the sting of death is sin. Power of the sin is the law. That, that venom goes into you and it travels through your veins and eventually causes a cardiac arrest and you die. Same picture here. So the people, um, fiery serpents all around the people. You can imagine the chaos. You can imagine the fear. You can imagine the grief as mothers see their children bit by snakes. Many of the people died. People came to Moses and said, okay, we've sinned. We've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. There he is interceding again. That's a theme. That's got to be a theme. Numbers. Moses' intercession. He prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, (coughs) set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. How, How is that good medical advice? (laughs) <laughs> what is that going to do? I mean, what is the what is the medical connection between viewing a, a, a model serpent, a bronze crafted serpent, up on a pole, and your sin being, or your your your, your uh, the venom being taken away from you, neutralizing the venom? What's the connection? No connection at all. In fact, God has commanded Moses to take the most loathsome object of their their sin, the consequence of their sin, and to put it up where they can look at it. Look at that. Look at that. You can imagine some people say, I'm not looking at that. I'll die right here. Yes, you will. will. That's for that. (laughs) They would. Other people saying, I'll do anything. So they did anything. Whoever, anyone who's bitten, when he sees it, he'll live. So Moses did that. He made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole. If a serpent bit anyone, he'd look at the bronze serpent and live. How is, so here's a question for you. How is Christ a picture of that bronze serpent or that bronze serpent a picture of Christ? 
we look at Christ on the cross, that is looking, he bore our sins. And that becomes the emblem, the very emblem of our faith, is a, is a man who bears our sins. The most loathsome death we can think of that has ever been invented. Good. Well said. Anybody want to add to that? Anybody want to comment for Brett? I, I want to be careful, but um, I, it does say that he became sin for us. He who knew no sin became sin for our, on our behalf. Exactly. So the very, just like the serpents were what God sent to inflict judgment. Same thing looking at Christ up on that cross. That's what God sent. He inflicted judgment on him. I'm just thinking too where Paul says that's the reason the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Right. I'm sure the people in the order says, that's stupid. That is not medical advice like you said, or medical treatment to look at that. And that's the, rest the, the way the rest of the world looks at Christianity. Right. Foolishness. It's total foolishness. Why would I do that? What's the connection? I see no logical connection. None of the doctors are saying this is a good advice. <laughs> Two things. First, it was an object of faith. It was an object of faith, or a demonstration of faith, and what the Lord told him to do, and it was obedience. Good faith and obedience. Good. So you see the obedient faith. You could call it faith, which is proved in the work of obedience. Just a simple thing to look, right? But really no human work involved in that. Just a channel, channel of God's blessing, right? You asked earlier, how could this possibly work? Because they obeyed. That's why it worked. Because God said it. Yeah. God just said, that's what I'll do. You're going to believe him or not. That's the issue. Just another thought, and that is the fact that Christ and the serpent have something in common. They both want to hurt each other. Satan bites the heel, Christ stomps on his head and crushes it. Yeah. I mean, that's just an upside thought. Yeah, well, I, I, like the, yeah, I like the reminder, you know, going back to Genesis 3.15 of the gospel in that very thing. And it does make you wonder. I don't, know, I don't know if I've traced that out before, but it does. You can't help but notice that Genesis 3.15 promise. It's good. Very good. So... It's, um, so the third, the third thing, I said key passages, there's the significant rebellions, there's the turning point in chapter 14, you can say chapter 13, 14. And then you see the foreshadowing of faith in Christ. And I think that's a pretty significant passage, key passage you should remember. Uh, the Old Testament reality here in Numbers 21, but then the New Testament fulfillment in John 3. Okay, we got a few minutes left here to cover some interpretive issues. And I want to mention... Just a couple, one briefly, and another one I want to kind of unpack a little bit more. Um, we'll see what we can get to. The first one is just some, you know, I'm not sure if this is an issue for, for um, anybody here. You may find it an issue if you're studying in college or you have college-age kids that you're uh, familiar with, where they find um, people who want to chip away at the Bibles reliability and credibility by looking at the large numbers of Israelites and say, that couldn't be. Okay, so look at Numbers 1, 45 and 46. Numbers 1, 45 and 46. Um, and we want to ask about these large numbers in the book of Numbers. Are they symbolic or hyperbolic? Like, 
Is this representing something? Or is this hyperbole on the part of Moses who's trying to, you know, be a good Baptist and puff up the numbers a bit? Were they literal and precise? What do we think? Well, we know what we think, right? But let's talk about why we believe that. So Numbers 1, 45 and 46. So all those listed of the people of Israel by their father's houses from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war in Israel, all those listed were 603,000 uh, 603, and 550. That's a lot of fighting men, right? And so if you imagine, um, okay, that doesn't even count all the kids coming up behind. It doesn't count any of the women. It doesn't count... Um, Levites. Yeah, the Le doesn't count the Levites and doesn't count the old men who are past fighting age. So what are we talking? We're probably talking at least a million people, yes. right? Maybe a million and a half? That's a lot of people. About two million is what Yeah, so the, then the second census... Their numbers dropped dramatically from 603,000 to 601,000. Just kidding. It's not a dramatic drop. But, but they did lose a couple thousand people. Um, but uh, the list of people in Israel, 601,730. So the liberal proposal here is to say that, you know, this word we're translating thousands. It's the word elef. Um, we shouldn't translate as thousands. We should translate that as clan or family. And it can, in some context, be translated that way, as a clan or a family instead of a thousand. That would mean, though, that Numbers 146 records 603 clans. Okay, and that means they're leading a total fighting force of 3,000, uh, yeah, 3,015 men. Hardly scary. Not very uh, formidable force, not a real cause of consternation for the people of Canaan, right? So actually turn to um, Joshua 2, right quick. Joshua 2, and, and just see if this report from Rahab squares with 3,000 guys, 600 family clan heads coming at you with swords. Um, See you there in Joshua chapter 2. I'm trying to turn to another place as well. So, in Joshua chapter 2, verses 8 to 11, before the men lay down, she's hiding the spies, right? So, before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. We've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came up out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings, the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in any man because of you, for the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. How would 3,000 Israelites provoke that kind of consternation? It says in uh, Numbers 22... And you know, Numbers 22 to 25 is Balak bringing Balaam out to curse Israel. He's terrified. It says in Numbers 22 2, Balak the son of Zippor saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, and Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many, <laughs> not 3,000. Right. 
So Exodus 1 uh, talks about, you know, and Pharaoh said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Yeah, exactly. They didn't have a standing army, yet the numbers were so vast that even you know, unskilled people were too mighty for, for them. And that was before they greatly increased as they were you know, subjected to more and more strenuous labor. Ryan, you're dead on. That's exactly right. So, so there you go. There's the way to do biblical apologetics right there is just continue to look at the different passages that can't be true if that liberal proposal is accepted. How is, I mean, how is Pharaoh, the superpower, leader of the greatest nation on the earth, the superpower of the earth, how is he going to be terrified of 3,000 people? Men, oh, fighting men. I mean, they're fighting men. Really good fighting forces. <laughs> Special forces? <laughs> well, Navy SEALs. <laughs> the other thing is, is that Balak took uh, Balaam to three different mountains to see Israel. Another good apologetic right there. Just want to get a good view from all sides of those 3,000 guys. <laughs> small, small mountain, small mountain. Yes. Would you even be more afraid if you thought it was only 3,000? Would you not help them do all of that? Yeah. What are you making the liberal case for us? <laughs> Have you not heard this, all this contrary evidence? <laughs> What's that? It shows God's power. I mean, there had to be three thousand to do what they did, right? Um, if you're a liberal, if you're a liberal, you don't believe in God and God's power. So, I mean, I suppose, I suppose you could try to say that. But there had to be a lot of people if God was killing a whole bunch of them, like they mentioned. There's some big numbers in there. Yeah. Yeah, twenty-four thousand. Yeah, I know. Seventeen. Yeah, a lot more than three thousand. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So. Yes, I mean, I guess we could, I guess you could go with the liberal position and say, see, it makes God even more powerful. But <laughs> so do those, those 3,000 people just all link hands and kind of circle around Jericho, you know, Red Rover? Red <laughs> <laughs> we need to keep moving, you guys. Yes, Alyssa. Um, if it was 3,000, I think it would have been pretty specific about that because I don't remember where it is, but it talks about how someone was going off to war and God had them separate people on how they drank water, whether like a dog or out of their hand. And he kept winnowing it down smaller and smaller and smaller so that he could prove that it was him winning. That's a great and, and he, it was very specific in how he kept winnowing the numbers down and that doesn't, it doesn't talk about that in numbers outside of the fact that they're all gonna die before they make it in the second generation, but you know. <laughs> Well, good. So there's another, I think, a good, a good uh, answer to that. Let's say a liberal were to say that. Doesn't it prove God even stronger for 3,000 people? What are all, the, all these answers? As well as when God does want to make a point with few numbers, he's specific about it. He winnows them down. He shows how he's doing that so he can be glorified. Okay, good. Um, we have just a few minutes left. I'd like to tackle, how do we understand Balaam? Um, so numbers 22 to 25. How do we understand this guy, is he a disobedient prophet, prophet of Yahweh? Like a prophet of Yahweh, but uh, just kind of a disobedient one. He's errant, he's misguided. Or is he strictly a false prophet? No apologies made. What is he? So on the one hand, if you look at Numbers 22, 18, when uh, 
when uh, Balak sends another contingent to go and appeal to him, what does Balaam, Balaam answers, he says to the servants of Balak, verse 8, uh, 22, 18, though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, he's so magnanimous here, though Balak were to, he almost naming his price, isn't he, in a subtle way? It's kind of typical of people back then, actually. And what's that? That's kind of typical of people back then, actually, because like Abraham sold his, uh, they sold that. Yeah, that piece Field. of property, that's and right. So even though it's only worth 200 shekels. Which <laughs> I mean, but what is 400 between me and you? Yeah, yeah. exactly. So exactly. Naming their price in a subtle way. I, I love the way they do that, though. It's kind of, yeah. kind of fun, right? You know, arbitrating. But anyway, so, though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of, and look what he uses, Yahweh. Of Yahweh my God to do less or more. So he's showing himself to be a true, faithful servant of Yahweh, his God. He says, my God. He uses the, 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 the possessive pronoun there, doesn't he? Balaam's a good guy. Um, Karen doesn't believe me. She's shaking her head vigorously. Like, no, that's not true. <laughs> so... You too, please stay the night here that I may tell you what more the Lord may say. <laughs> if God, listen, if God says no, just take it that he really did mean it. Don't go back and ask him again. I like to tell my kids that. <laughs> you know, if I said no the first time, I really do mean it. <laughs> um, so on the one hand, he professed to be a true prophet of Yahweh. On the other hand, he's pointed to as the stereotype, the prototype of all false prophets. We see that in 2 Peter 2, Jude 11, uh, Revelation 2. So just the, the quick solution, and I, and I want to unpack this just a little bit with any time we have. The Lord used Balaam as a tool. That's how he just used Balaam as a tool, just as he used Balaam's donkey as a tool. Okay? Alfred Edersheim, he says Balaam was considered to be an expert in being able to get his way with the gods. That was what he was known for. Uh, he was sort of uh, what, what Edersheim called a god controller. Um, someone who can manipulate the gods. And that's what Balak was after. He knew his power to get his way with the gods. And he thought, that's my guy right there. I'm hiring him. There's some extra biblical witnesses that were discovered in an archaeological dig. At, uh, it's Tel, Deir, Allah, uh, the Hebrew. It's near the Hebrew Valley of Succoth not far from the junction of the Jabbok and Jordan rivers, and there were some plaster fragments there discovered in the ruins of an Iron Age II temple naming, naming actually, Balaam, son of Beor. And he's known as Jose Elohim, that is the seer of the gods, on the fragments. Extra-biblical source. One scholar noted about that find, quote, an epic figure known only from the Hebrew Bible and from post-biblical interpretive literature, that is, talking about our New Testament, an epic figure known only from the Hebrew Bible and from post-biblical interpretive literature was, in fact, renowned in the Jordan Valley during the pre-exilic biblical period. End quote. Balaam was famous. He was so famous, he was infamous. I'm just kidding. That's <laughs> three amigos. All right, so numbers, let's read. Um, I'm going to speed read, you guys, so follow me if you can, and hopefully I can keep my words controlled. 
I'm going to speed read Numbers 22, 1 through 21. The people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan of Jericho. Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, and Moab was in great dread of the people because there were many. Moab was overcome with fear because of the people of Israel. Moab said to the elders of Midian, this horde of 3,000 will now lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the people of Amal, to call him, saying, Behold, the people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth. A very small space on the earth. Um, cover the face of the earth, for they are dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they're too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them, drive them from the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, he whom you curse is cursed. So the elders of Moab, the elders of Midian, departed with the fees for div divination in their hand. Mark that. Any false prophet driven by Greed. It may not be money all the time. Sometimes it's just fame itself. Sometimes it's power and influence that people are after. But they always have something they want. They came to Balaam, gave him Balak's message. He said to them, Lodge here tonight, and I will bring back word to you as the Lord, as Yahweh, speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? Balaam said to God, Balak the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent, sent to me, saying, and then he tells them. So God, uh, God said to Balaam, verse 12, You shall not go out with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. Any ambigu uh, ambiguity in his? Uh, you shall not. You shall not. You shall not. You shall not go. You shall not curse. Balaam arose in the morning and said to the prince of Balak, Go to your own land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. Notice he doesn't say, or to curse. So the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. Once again, Balak sent princes, not just elders. Let's send princes. More in number, more honorable than these. And they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, Let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will surely do you great honor. And whatever you say to me, I will do. Come, curse this people for me. Why is he saying, come, curse this people for me? Because Balaam actually left them an opening, didn't he? Mm -hmm. Balaam answered, as he said, though a house full of silver and gold couldn't go beyond the command of the Lord. So please stay here tonight, verse 19, that I may know what more the Lord may say to me. God came to Balaam at night and said, if the men have come to call you, rise, go with them, but only do what I tell you. So Balaam rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, went with the princes of Moab. So how do we understand God's seeming change of mind? In allowing Balaam to go with the servants of Balak? How would you explain that? It's not he a didn't change of mind at all. He didn't change his mind. His parents do that all the time. They're like, please, 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 can I go to the movies with the people you really don't like? And they say no three times, and then finally they say, yeah, fine, go. Fine, destroy your life. Yeah. Hang out with bad people. Yeah. See if I care. That's what good parents say, right? <laughs> <laughs> good parents say, I don't know whether it's a good thing to do, but that's what yeah, good. Yeah. So enough, enough pressure, enough pressure, enough pressure. No, I don't think God gave in to the pressure. He's just like, I don't care about you at all. Go ahead and go. I'll be glorified through this, and I told you not, not to go already. You know? You're okay. Suffer the consequences. 
All right, Leah? Having him go didn't change his answer because he's still going to tell him the same thing once he gets there. Yes, exactly. Having him go didn't change God's ultimate answer, right? Commanded him not to go, Balaam disobeyed. He commanded him not to curse. What happens? No cursing came out of Balaam's mouth. So God planned to use Balaam here as an object lesson. And it wasn't just for this immediate situation in the case of Balaam, but for our sake, again. So look at second, uh, I'll just turn there. Yeah, that's good, two minutes, so. Let me turn there quickly, Second Peter 2. Um, talking about the false teachers who have infiltrated the church. <coughs> they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. And here's, the, here's the, the comment that launches Peter into this example of Balaam. They have hearts trained in greed. Isn't that an interesting? Like training your heart, we're supposed to train our hearts for righteousness. Train our senses to be discerning through continual exposure to the truth, Hebrews 5. They have trained their hearts in greed to continue to follow the impulses of greed. Accursed children, verse 15, forsaking the right way, They've gone astray. They've followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but he was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. So this is, again, he is the prototype false teacher. He is what we are to look out for in the church. He becomes an illustration for all of us who would be on our guard against false teachers and false teaching Entering into the church, we got to watch out for these people and know that whatever Second Peter has said about them and whatever we see illustrated in the book of Numbers about Balaam is true of these guys too. Even if they come with a really smiley, a really good smile. Talk about, like, your best life now. <laughs> so there are a bunch of parallels I'm not going to go into right now uh, between the donkey's bad service to Balaam and Balaam's bad service to Balak. So I, if you want that, I can send you that sometime in a document or something. Verse, what was the verse again, the Peter verse? Um, 2 Peter 2, verses 15 and 16. Because Peter makes a comparison between false teachers and unreasoning beasts. And it's interesting that Balaam is like his unreasoning beasts. So... After uh, God rebuked the madness of the false prophet by the disobedience of his own donkey, God extracted nothing but blessing from Balaam. That was to Balak's chagrin, and it wasn't the end of the story. Um, Balaam was behind Israel's eventual disobedience in Numbers chapter 25, where the people, again, sat down to feast with Moab and mixed in with their women. Right. So... Um, Balaam, Balaam could not control God. He was not a controller of the gods in the sense of being able to control or manipulate Yahweh. And so since he couldn't control God to curse his own people, he changed tactics to bring about the same effect. He made Israel cursable. He got them to sin, to sin grievously, so that it would incur God's wrath and judgment. That's what happened, okay? 24,000 died at God's hand because they committed immorality to the Moabite women. So just in conclusion here, um, Balaam got what he wanted. 
he got or Balaam got what he wanted, uh, or, or Balaam got what he wanted. He got his temporal reward, but uh, Numbers thirty-one eight tells us the Israelites eventually killed Balaam, and he was ushered before Yahweh for judgment. I'm going to close with this. Um, Numbers thirty-six thirteen says these are the commandments and the rules that the Lord commanded through Moses to the people of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan near Jericho. This whole book has set up Israel to be exactly where they need to be so that Moses can then reiterate the law that was given to the generation of their parents, teach them everything that God had said, and then this second generation would then march in across the Jordan, parting the Red Sea just as it happened at Red Sea, parting, or parting the Jordan just as it happened at the Red Sea, parting the Jordan, sending them through, and the first place they come to is Jericho. So that's set up for Deuteronomy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the time tonight. We thank you for this great book of numbers and all that it teaches us. We ask that, uh, just being a little bit more exposed to it now and the lessons that are there, that we remember these things and use them uh, for our own edification and for the instruction of others, for the instruction of our families, for the instruction of people who, who don't know the truth. Help us to lead them to an understanding of their own sinfulness and the, the marks of those things and uh, with, the, with the result that we would lead them to uh, eventual faith in Jesus Christ. And we thank you for leading us to faith in Christ, who is to us the, the serpent who is raised up on uh, the pole that Moses raised. We thank you that you have caused us to look to him, trust him, and not ourselves. We love you. Thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen.